Intelligent Threads, the most advanced wearable technology on the market. This revolutionary product releases engaged muscles holding your body out of structural balance. The results are legendary, improving posture, sleep, and relaxation while decreasing pain. Go to IntelligentThreads.com today for more info. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Inval Ben-Ami Bartal, part of the School of Psychological Sciences at Tel Aviv University in Israel. And we're going to talk about what's called pro-social behavior and the neurological basis of it. So thank you for coming. Inbal, how are you doing? Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you and all the listeners today. Well, good. And, and thank you for being here late in the evening. Just so you know, it's like late night for involved, but she still came. So we appreciate that. Tell oh, me a bit sure. about your background and then what led you to this area of study. Right. So I am what you would call a psychobiologist. Or I have a background in psychology. I also have a background as a, neuro, a neuroscientist. So I try to combine these different perspectives to gain insight on, on what, what leads to complex types of behaviors that we see in humans. But I ended up actually, funnily enough, focusing most of my research not on humans, but rather on a different mammal, our friend, the rat. I really was interested in along my career and have been working on this for the past over a decade or 15 years is to really try to understand what happens when we see someone in distress, in, in pain or, or fear or some kind of need? And what happens in our brains more specifically from the moment that we see that person in distress to that point where we might decide to actually approach and help that individual? And I started that path looking at humans, but uh, I, I found that humans are really complicated. And the way that we think about phenomena such as uh, empathy or compassion or pro-social behavior, which is acting uh, for the benefit of someone else, it becomes really complex when you think about it uh, in the human terms. There are a lot of factors that that drive these type of decisions. And, and so I found myself drawing back on my previous experience as a researcher in neuroimmunology and thinking about the way that we can simplify the way that we do this kind of research and turn to a mammal that is very, very social. And actually, I found out later on that is really motivated when it observes other individuals' uh, conspecifics in the stress to actually approach and help those individuals. And that was kind of the basic premise of my whole my whole program of research. So I I have my uh, lab now at uh, Tel Aviv University, and uh, that's in Israel. So you know, as you as you well know, uh, it's a region that's uh, quite fraught with uh, intergroup uh, conflict and uh, problems with empathy for uh, outgroup members compared to in-group members. 
So that was, in, in, as far as my my interest and my background, that was why perhaps why I was so drawn to to this very question. But I really do think that it, it is, you know, pandemic in in our global environment today, and that the question of polarization and and the way that we um, interact with uh, with different groups is uh, is a problem across the world. So I'm very interested in it, both from the basic science sort of point of view of trying to understand how these kind of processes are are brought about by our physiology, our biological systems, and both both in the in the more psychological or cultural cultural term. Well, quick, quick question here: what 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 do you hope would be a good outcome of your research? Once you get far enough along, whatever that means, what do you hope to impact with it? I well, you know, I think every scientist uh, like me wants to have major impact on the way that uh, on the welfare of humanity. <laughs> That's the the global goal. Whether you're researching, you know, cancer or trying to understand something related to psychopathology, and uh, it's not very different for me. It's uh, trying to think both of the way if we gain enough understanding of the actual the actual neural circuitry, for example, that, that drives pro-social behavior, we can, first of all, we can understand what happens when these things go wrong. For example, in psychopathologies that are related to, to deficits and empathy, like uh, autism spectrum disorder or psychopathy or conduct disorder. But we can also gain a insight into how we can really develop better and more effective strategies to influence or to enhance things like uh, compassion for our group members by instead of trying to to cognitively intervene and uh, and convince ourselves to to feel more compassion we can we can if we understand what motivates us on a biological level uh, we we can then be more effective in in finding new solutions to these to these uh, very ancient problems that we're facing. Yes. You know, what's weird is that as I think I was going to joke with you and say, like, maybe you could teach governments of the world to be, uh, you know, pro-social and more compassionate <laughs> because they always seem to rule by decree. You're going to do this and we're going to punish you. So if that's, mm-hmm. I mean, again, this is just my opinion, but that seems to be the default of governments around the world, especially the last few years. You're going to do this or else. So why are... I, again, this is my opinion, but it seems like a lot of governments are like that. Do you think so? And why, if, if so, why are governments essentially antisocial or, you know, ruling by decree instead of ruling by being nice to people somehow? It's a quite a pink question for me because, uh, as you may know, Israel has quite turbulent politics and we just had elections and pretty right wing government uh, has been elected. And so uh, parts. Part of that you're saying kind of mirrors this uh, global trend for reflecting some kind of societal urge, more constraining uh, social structures. But, you know, I, I really think that there's, there's an ongoing sort of debate, if you will, amongst psychologists and philosophers. When you're looking at global trends, is the world becoming less empathic? We kind of we have this sort of intuition that it is becoming less empathic, but that's not necessarily completely true. 
that there there is there is a group of thinkers that that are actually saying the opposite might be happening we might actually be living in a very empathic times but uh, we're just more exposed to everything that happens everywhere and we have this very a strong bias we hear about all the negative and anti-social things that happen so we we feel like we're living in a less empathic time but you know if you think about historical events and of human human history that's not necessarily the case but i really i don't really know and i do think humans are super complicated so if i'll explain to you a little bit about rats and uh, we can simplify this very complicated problem if you if you will yeah so, my daughter my daughter just yes. a quick note just for listeners in case they don't know i mean maybe i'm stupid because i didn't know this but My daughter had mice and rats, and I saw there was a huge difference that the rats were seemed to be a lot more intelligent and a lot less skittish and curious than the mice. So I think they may be very good subjects for you to study because of that. They seem to be like you know, the ones we had were like really well trained, and again, they just seem to be very curious and interesting and, and smart. I very much I adore these these rats that I work with, and I think they are really. Wonderful pets as well, for sure. They are very smart and they're very social and they have individual personalities for sure. And uh, they are capable of learning all kinds of situational, different situations. And, and uh, that allows us to examine what they would, you know, what they would do under different circumstances in a way that mice really just won't, won't do. Although I will say that in the last couple of years, there have been Uh, a couple of research groups that have worked on developing these pro-social paradigms similar to what I um, had developed and with mice and uh, and are are becoming more successful at it so that there is a hope for mice as well after all intelligent threads produces results within seconds of wear tested over the past seven years for maximum effectiveness and quality of life improvements Think about an 80% better REM and deep sleep per night. This revolutionary technology is the game changer everyone needs. Go to intelligentthreads.com today. How do you look at empathy, something like empathy in a rat, right? So let me for a second just define what I'm thinking of when I, when I say the word empathy and for social behavior, because there are a lot of different uh, definitions and concepts like empathy, sympathy, compassion, emotional contagion, all these different types of concepts that tend to get intertwined semantically when we're thinking about it. And it's really important, especially since we are going to talk about rats and not about humans, to try to conceptualize empathy in a way that allows us to investigate it in animals and uh, non-human animals. And so when I think about empathy, I think about it very intuitively as our tendency to be able to understand and reflect the emotional states of others. But it's not only that. I think when we say empathy, we're also assuming some kind of a motivational state that is a pro-social motivational state, which basically means that there is some component of caring, basically, about the outcome of the other individual who happens to be in distress. And well, I, um, being, being pro-social just means that you are you're willing to act for that benefit, that other individual. Hmm, okay. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, X number of years ago, I don't remember how long, but there was a study on rat mothers that 
you know, the ones that licked and groomed their pups a lot more, mm-hmm. the pups grew up to be a lot more, um, I don't know, they were more sociable. They weren't as anxious, mm-hmm. et cetera. Do you, do you have to put that into your calculations? Like, you know, a situation where a rat would normally be pro-social if it was raised by a bad mother that didn't lick it and mm-hmm. care for it very much. Does that kind of undo its behavior or alter it radically? Yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, bunch of studies uh, by uh, Michael Meany's uh, group that showed the epigenetic basis of, uh, of these type of effects. So when the mothers lick and groom the, their pups, they actually cause long-term changes in, in stress system by changing the amounts of receptors in the brain that are sensitive to stress transmission in the brain, to put it simply. And so these pups, when they grew up, they appeared to be less anxious and more more bold. And of course, when you are more bold, you are more successful, you're more resilient. And these animals were basically thriving more. And we definitely think about these things. And part of my research focuses on the effect of early life stress and trauma in the rats. And in in this case, I'm talking about maternal separation, which kind of speaks to what you're referring to, and trying to understand how adult behavior, the social adult behavior changes uh, in these animals who are exposed to to early life stress. And not only that, what we're really interested in understanding is not only these behavioral changes, but the, the biological, the neurobiology that underlies these long-term changes. So, so that, that is part of what I'm studying in the lab. But let me take one step back, if that's okay, and explain sure. what we know, what happens in your brain when you see somebody, for instance, cutting their fingers with a knife. I mean, even when I say that, you might get, you might feel some kind of aversive response, right? Because yeah. we have, we have harm aversion to others naturally. And uh, what studies with human subjects that looked did uh, neuroimaging and, and observed activity in subjects' brain when they were observing others in pain or distress from 10 or 20 years ago at this point found a, a really fascinating discovery that we actually activate the very same neural network when we ourselves experience pain and distress and when we see someone else experiencing pain and distress. And this shared neural activity reflects mostly the emotional, the affective component of pain or that the aversive response that we have to pain. So in that way, in this kind of dispersed network in your brain that includes areas in the frontal cortex and areas that are more in the midbrain or more in the limbic system that are not requiring things like complex cognitive function are actually highly conserved across mammalian species. And this system uh, is understood to be the way that we process the stress of others and that we also feel these, this response that we, we think of as an empathic response to, to their distress. Yeah, are there um, personality archetypes that respond to, you know, other people being hurt in a predictable way? Like, like for instance, um, you know, I hate horror movies. I don't want to see them ever again because I feel like life is bad enough. I don't want to be, you know, see terrible things. But like my son loves them. You know, he's not, 
I guess, you know, damaged like I am emotionally and he's okay to see him. But again, are there archetypes? Like you said, the rats have personalities. Again, are there different archetypes that lead to different levels of pro or antisocial behavior in people or in rats? For sure. I mean, I think that we all kind of know that from our life experience that, that some people have higher sensitivity to others' pain. Uh, it's not exactly clear at this point what's uh, special about people who are more sensitive or less sensitive. There's really fascinating study. People who are really on the extreme ends of the spectrum of empathic uh, responsiveness. So one extreme is, and this is uh, Abigail Marsh's research. And on the one hand, she looked at psychopathy. She looked at what happens when psychopaths see others in pain or fear. And she also looked on the other end of the spectrum at um, these super altruists, people who are, you know, so altruistic that they do extraordinary things above and beyond average. For example, jump into the into the train uh, rails to save a stranger who is uh, fallen in. Her group of subjects that she looked at scientifically was people who donate kidney anonymously to an anonymous recipient. And this is often something that people do. I mean, it's almost pathological in a way because it's it's something that they often do even against their family's wishes or, you know, they just feel really compelled to to help someone who they don't even know and they're not going to get any you know any ostensible reward for for this behavior and she found a very common a common thread to both of these extremes which was this regulation of a certain area in the brain that's called amygdala and this region of the brain is associated specifically with processing fear and uh and very salient salient emotions or salient things in the world that we should pay our attention to and specifically she found that in psychopathy there tends to be less activity in response in this area in response to other people's fear uh whereas in super altruist there is actually hypersensitivity in the amygdala to other people's fear so that gives us a little inkling or a clue of, of how these things could be modulated by the brain. What about uh, self-awareness? Like, you know, some people are what's called hypervigilant. Are those people more likely to be hypervigilant about others than they are about themselves or the people are very self-conscious? Yes, there are indications, actually, that people who are more, they tend to be more anxious or more fearful also tend to show they tend to be more sensitive, show more empathy to other people's pain and uh, distress. And so that might be because it might be related to the fact that we're probably using the very same system, right, to to process our own distress and others' distress. So if your neural system is very responsive to distress, then it would respond both to yours and to other people's distress. Like, uh, Someone said to me once, you know, never go to a dentist who tells you that he doesn't mind going to the dentist because it never hurts him, right? <laughs> you 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 kind of want to feel like the person in front of you has their own uh, experience uh, to to be able to to put themselves in your shoes and, and identify with what you might be feeling. Well, speaking of dentists, you might want to see the old movie Little Shop of Horrors. I do like know that crazy, 
Oh, yeah, you're the crazy dentist that likes to hurt people, you know, the opposite. Right. <laughs> of course. But let's focus on our positive, on our positive rat, who, you know, I should uh, caveat this uh, next couple of sentences by saying that rats, we have actually revealed or kind of helped uh, others see this very positive pro-social behavior that the rats to do for others. But of course, rats, like humans, can respond either pro-socially or anti-socially. They can be aggressive, just like we can be. And it, both of these behaviors can be adaptive depending on the context and who's standing in front of you and what the situation is. So in, in a couple of words, the basic finding is that when a rat observes a cage mate that is trapped in a little jail-like tube, in a plastic tube, it's not a painful situation. It's a, considered a mild psychological stress. The rats don't really like to be trapped, but they're not in pain. They're not extremely, they're not in any extreme suffering. They just would prefer to get out. And free rat that is on the outside of the trap, extremely bothered by the fact that the cage mate is trapped. And they show this by circling constantly around the restrainer containing the trapped rat and trying basically to, to reach the trapped rat by kind of biting at the restrainer or clawing or digging under it. And this, uh, this trap has a door that can only be opened from the outside by the free rat. And this test, the rats experience the situation for one hour every day for a couple of weeks. And at the beginning, they don't really know what to do. They don't know that they can open the door. They don't know that the door is a door. And then at some point, they discover that they can, they can knock the door over it by flipping it over the side with, with their snout. And when they do that, the trapped rat is released. And once they figure that out, they repeat that behavior on the subsequent sessions very quickly within a couple of minutes of being placed in, in the, in the test arena. And we found that most rats that are tested with a trapped cage mate will learn to, to do this task and open the door and release the cage mate. And they don't do that for a bunch of other conditions, like if there's a toy in the restrainer or if the restrainer is empty. Uh, so it's really driven by the trapped cage mate. And why am I saying that this is motivated by a rat-like, uh, empathy-like uh, experience? We looked a lot at the different at the different factors that motivate this behavior. And what we found was, first of all, that the rats are distressed. We see an increase in stress hormones, not only in the trapped rat, but also in the observer and the free rat. And this response goes away once these rats learn how to open the door and release the trapped rat. And more, even more interesting is that if you block the transfer of the stress between the two rats by giving them anxiolytic, uh, the anxiety medication, a very common one that people often use, um, Dazolam, then they actually don't help nearly as much, uh, whether the free rat is not feeling the stress or the trapped rat is not feeling the stress. Hmm. And the final, the final, there's a couple of interesting pieces to this puzzle is that rats, of course, rats like us, they really like to be together and play together. 
So uh, they might be motivated by the social reward that, you know, that you feel when you get to hang out with the previously trapped rat. And now you, the, the free rat can maybe play or interact with the trapped rat. But we have discovered that even if that doesn't, even if they are not allowed to interact at all after the release of the trapped rats. So if the trapped rat is released onto a separate space and they can't interact at all, this behavior is still demonstrated. And that finding, which was really important because a lot of people kind of, that was the main criticism against this paradigm. This, this was also shown by several other research groups at this point using very similar paradigms. The rats are doing this behavior even if they don't get as the social reward of, of interacting with the release rat afterwards. Okay. What about if you put them in a situation where the, you need two rats to, um, I don't know, get through a maze? It's like, you know, this is probably thinking of like how the movies, but, you know, one rat has to stand on a platform and at the same time, another rat has to stand on another platform uh-huh. in order to open a door. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's kind of crazy. That but is, is there a situation true. like that? Would that work? You know, like well, they, where they have to cooperate um, to get a, you know, get a result? There are, yes, there are quite a lot of studies looking at cooperation in rats, specifically not something as cognitively complex as, you know, it's not an escape room where <laughs> they can, they can learn how to, uh, I mean, I don't know if anybody's tried that actually, Richard, that, that if you'd like to, to come to my lab for a couple of years, I think we could work on that. <laughs> but it's been really interesting to see that rats will collaborate. They will reciprocate, for instance, for food rewards. So they will pass a food reward to another rat if they will themselves get a food reward in return. And not rats, but other species such as wolves or elephants do learn to cooperate by pulling a rope simultaneously to, to get, to get a tray of food closer to them within reach. And interestingly enough, rats actually really love to synchronize their behavior. So you mentioned maze running and rats really, uh, they, they will, there is research showing that they prefer to coordinate, to synchronize maze running, even when they don't get any particular reward for doing so. So, so yeah, so there are a lot of, uh, I mean, the, this field of, of animal behavior and social behavior has really expanded in the last couple of decades, thanks to a lot of hard, brave work by, by some scientists, because just even when, when I first uh, published this paradigm, it was still quite taboo to, to discuss these types of behaviors in non-humans. And now it's become much more acceptable to the point that even, you know, the biggest labs and, you know, top tier universities are publishing, publishing routinely data that comes out of these types of, of paradigms that's really helping to push forward the way that we understand social behavior. Yeah, if you'd like this lead to, this lead to like social engineering where, you know, if you discover what makes rats more cooperative, that, you know, things like that maybe tried with people or would that be a, you know, manipulative in a bad way? Like what's your... So let me give you an example from the rats and how I think that this could be applicable to humans. Okay. So we find in the rats that like humans, they show a really strong in-group bias, which means that we as humans and a lot of other species as well, 
you know, we show empathy and pro-social behavior, but we tend to do that specifically towards, first of all, obviously, you know, if you think about your kin or your close, familiar group of friends, but even more broad than that, a lot of social species show preferably show these types of behaviors towards uh, the group of animals that they live in, even strangers that are a part of that group. And we as humans in particular, you know, are very, very good at this because we have to make a lot of social decisions very quickly based on very few situational cues. So, you know, something like just a blue ribbon or a red ribbon can change people's neural activity in response to a face if they know, if they were just told 20 minutes ago that they are blue, you know? So, so we have a very, very powerful capacity to, to change our whole social approach to someone based on, on this, uh, group formation. And we found that the rats are similar and they will, they will help strangers from their own, uh, group, which in, in this case is the same strain as them. These white albino rats that we use are sprag dollies, but they don't release trapped uh, strangers from this unfamiliar long Evans strain that has this like black hooded cape on the uh, fur on their on their fronts. And um, and and why am I saying that this is a this is a, a an in group out group effect? Is that we also found that this behavior can be totally flexible depending on the rat's social experience. So if they actually, it's enough for them to live with one rat from the out group, from the other strain for two weeks, and they show not only do they start releasing their cage mates from that other strain, they also expand that pro-social motivation and they will help strangers from the unfamiliar strain that before they were not interested in helping. But once they get to know the other species of rats by hanging out with one of them, then they're more compassionate to all members of that species? Exactly. They expand their pro-social motivation. And we don't know huh. if this is due to, for example, uh, reduced threat arousal in response to the stranger, or if it's uh, more sensitivity to the distress signal that now they are more attuned to now that they are familiar with this strain, but whatever the the reason is, they actually uh, totally shift their behavior. And so what did that showed us, combined with this other study that we did when we cross-fostered rats at birth with a litter of this a black uh, cape strain, the Long Evan strain, and we saw that cross-fostering also caused these dolly rats who never had any experience with their own strain and they grew up like Mowgli in the jungle they grew up and only knew these these long Evans rats and when they had the opportunity to help a stranger from their own strain as an adult they didn't do it at all they only helped their adoptive strain so so these two experiments combined this cohabitation with the other rat for as an adult for two weeks and this cross-fostering study that caused these rats not to help their own strain showed us that their pro-social motivation or their empathic responses are determined by their social experience and not biologically determined. That's yeah, that's interesting. Thing. 
I was wondering, like, um, if, if you have two male rats, let's say, that, you know, want to be with one of the females and if they would normally fight, is there a way to get them to work together, even though when they would normally be rivals? Maybe this will work better in monkeys. I don't know. But I don't know if this happens in rats. That's a, you know, that's a great question. I, I, I have no answer for that. I, I am interested in doing the opposite. Uh, which is to create a situation where these in-group members become competitors over some kind of resource and see whether that changes their first social motivation. But yeah, but for example, you could think of, you know, actually there is really cool studies. Jeff Mogul's lab who was one of the pioneers of showing that rodents, you know, have this transfer of, of uh, distress between them. He showed that uh, mice uh, who are looking at other mice in pain showed increased sensitivity to pain themselves. It's called hyperalgesia. They showed increased sensitivity to pain, but only if the other mouse in pain was familiar to them and not if he was a stranger mouse. And they did a really cute study with humans and they showed that you, you could basically get humans to act like friends in terms of their, their pain sensitivity modulation by getting them to play guitar hero together for half an hour. So these human mm. subjects would come to the lab and they would put their hands in a bucket of ice. Do you know what happens when you put your hand in a bucket of ice? After about uh, five seconds, it's really unpleasant. Yes, it becomes quite painful and you pull your hand out and we can measure your pain threshold. Like how quickly did you pull your hand out? And what they showed is that when you're doing this experiment with a friend alongside you, just like with the mice, you are more sensitive to pain. When you see your friend in pain, you pull your hand out faster. But if the guy next to you is a stranger, you actually pull out your hand out slower than you would if you were by yourself. So when there's a stranger around, you are less sensitive to pain than you are when you're by yourself. And so well, is it is it a sensitivity or is it social conditioning? You know, like if you have a friend that you know, you trust them and you trust their responses more than a stranger. So maybe that's why. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good alternative explanation. They, I mean, that could theoretically, you know, on some level be possible for mice as well. Uh, but when you think about the, it's more of a biological mechanism that mediates it. So they show that it's dependent on, uh, on the stress network, on activation of uh, glucocorticoid receptors, and you can block this effect by blocking the, the stress system, the HPA axis. So, so it, you know, it might be related to, but you know, you have to think, what does it mean you're trusting your friend? It means that you're, if you are in a safety mode, sort of, your, your whole physiology changes, right? Your vagal tone of your vagus nerve changes. Like there's a lot of changes that could influence your receptors responses to things like external stimuli. Uh, so these are not necessarily contradicting explanations. But so then the bottom, the, the, the punchline is that, uh, when they got these strangers to play guitar hero for half an hour, after that, they showed the same increased sensitivity to pain as, uh, the friends did, which is super cool. And I think that goes back to your idea of doing that with the rats. You could probably get the rats to, to become friends by getting them, you know, to like run a, a wheel together or something like that. So, yeah, or uh, eat a meal, eat a meal together, or something. Share a meal, yes, absolutely. Well, I remember when I was little, I had hamsters. I know they're a different creature, but 
Um, sometimes I give them oh, like a whole corn on the jerks. <laughs> well, but I, no, but I would I would give no, them um, a whole corn on the cob, and they would line up around the corn on the cob like like you know a family, and they would eat it to nothing. <laughs> like literally, they would eat every bit, but they would all hang out, eat from the same corn mm-hmm. carcass, you could say. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that would engender uh, pro-social behavior in rats. Yeah, you have very, you have very good intuitions. I know that some people are working on on similar things. So uh, definitely, eating together is a really good way to to get people to, you know, this is basically what we have parties for, right? So <laughs> do do you? Uh, do you, are you curious to hear what happens in the brains of these rats? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have asked you that, but my brain kept giving uh, silly examples. But go ahead, please. Yes. I know. So um, it's a very, it's such a fascinating behavior and such a complex behavior that we we can definitely spend a lot of time talking about that. But the brain as well is extremely fascinating. And so what we do is that we look at the brain wide activity of these rats after they are in the situation, either in a pro-social situation or a non-pro-social situation. So, for instance, we can look at rats there with a trapped in-group member or an out-group member, and afterwards we can ask what parts of their brain were active when they were doing this task. And we can contrast between these conditions and uh, try to, to, to dissociate the neural circuitry that that is specifically involved in pro-social motivation. And when we do that, what we see is really, it's fascinating on so many levels. First, uh, we see a really similar network in the rat as has been widely documented in the human literature for empathy. The very same regions are active in rats when they observe trapped conspecific. So this like affective empathy network that we see in humans. Interestingly, what we see in the rats is that this network is active regardless of whether these rats decide eventually to help the trapped rat or not. So this was really counterintuitive for me because I expected to find activity in this empathy network only for the the in-group members uh, and that it would be predictive of helping behavior and that was not really the case. And so what that showed to me and the way I interpret this is that this network that we think of as an empathy network is actually the way that the brain processes the fact that someone, someone in the vicinity is in distress. And it doesn't really speak to the willingness of that animal to actually act for the benefit of the trapped animal or act in a pro-social way. But there is a network that is only activated in a pro-social context. And we only see that network active in the helper rat, in the in-group condition. And that network... Well, what's, um, quick question. What happens when, uh, you know, like you mentioned the rat was in a trap and the other rat figured out how to get it out with the trap door. At the moment that the other rat comes out, what changes in the brain of the, of the helper rat? Do they get like a surge of oxytocin when the rat comes out and they go, oh, thank you. Or again, <laughs> like, like you uh, mentioned earlier, earlier on, yeah. When you know, so part of the brain's active already when they first see the trapped rat. But how does that signal change? Like in the beginning, how long does it take the brain to assess the situation and then act? And what changes when it acts? And then again, what changes when the rat gets freed? Right. So what we are seeing 
is that the brain's reward system is involved in this. The, the reward system is this uh, dopaminergic network in the brain that is what helps you to, to do things that are actually, you know, good for your survival, that makes chocolate uh, taste good and, uh, uh, things like, uh, gaining money can, can activate the system or doing anything that feels good, basically. Uh, but we have, we think of this network more, more generally as a motivational network because it can also be activated when you're trying to avoid something aversive. It's not only activated when you're feeling good, but it's a very strong, it's a very strong mechanism that drives us to approach something or even to avoid something sometimes. And we see this dopaminergic network activated only in the, in the uh, helping, uh, in the empathy conditions, in the empathy rats. And interestingly, we also see, we've looked, for example, at one part of the brain that's called the nucleus accumbens, that's kind of a central hub of the reward system. And we see in this, specifically in this area, we see that there is a spike in activity when the door to the trap falls open. So at some point, the rats do realize that the door itself, they find the actual door opening itself rewarding at some point. But we don't see any activity in this reward network when the trapped rat is an outgroup member. What we're thinking basically is that, and regarding your question about oxytocin, it's definitely involved. I haven't uh, uh, shown specifically, specifically the way that oxytocin is involved in, in this response, but other researchers have shown that it is it plays a role in this a kind of helping behavior in the rat. And that definitely makes sense, but it's probably more a more complicated interaction between something like oxytocin, dopamine, and even serotonin, all these uh, neurotransmitters that lead to such a complex type of, of behavioral response. And we are investigating these interactions. And this, this research still needs to, to, to be developed more so that we can really understand the way that different pathways in the brain are recruited for for these different conditions. But just the final point is that I think that a really important takeaway from this, there is another region that's called the orbitofrontal cortex. And this region is really important for assessing the reward value of things for the self. And it's also activated along the reward system, specifically in these helping conditions. And uh, what that shows me it's that at least for the rats, I, you know, there are actually some parallels from the human research, but at least for the rats, what we can see is that it's not the amount of activity in the empathy network in the brain that is important or the amount of suffering that they so-called process, but it is how much they value the outcome of that specific, the, 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 the specific animal that is trapped. And if there is a high value for the outcome for that animal, then they show activation in this motivational network and they are motivated to approach and help. So the question should be not how we emphasize the suffering of the other that's in distress, but rather how do we enhance this feeling of the value of the other's outcome or this common group identity that seems to drive this value naturally. And when we think about how that could be happening in the brain, we think about the way that the brain processes 
things like social identity information and social category information and how these responses can modulate this like whole cascade of emotional and motivational responses to someone in distress. That's what we're currently investigating in the lab. Okay. Uh, one last thought I uh, experiment I thought of is what if you have um, a male on the outside and, you know, inside the, the trap is like a female in heat versus a male on the outside and the female is not in heat. You know, have you tried that to see if there's like a, you know, a change in the pro-social behavior? Because it's altruistic at that point, but it's still also self-serving. You know, the male would hope to mate with the female, especially if she's in heat. So maybe that would change the behavior a lot. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, I totally imagine that uh, I've never tried this, but I totally imagine that they would learn to open the door faster. Say there was something even more desirable inside. And that doesn't have to be female in heat. It can also be a non-social object. Like if an animal, you know, is very hungry and there's food inside, then it would learn to open the restrainer faster probably. Or if, if an animal is trapped and the door is turned around so that it can be opened from the inside, then animals learn very fast how to open the door. But, but this doesn't really, it doesn't subtract from the value of, of learning to open the door for a same strain, same sex, same age, conspecific and non-related stranger that I think is, you know, the, the more, maybe was a little baffling finding for 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 some researchers when when we first uh, demonstrated that this was happening but i did try something like what you're saying once in a pilot study that i never published i tried to see whether a rat a male rat would release a female to a separate arena where his cage mate was waiting okay so would he be so altruistic right. as not to get the female himself, but to 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 release her to the custody of his cage mate? And uh, uh, I did not see much helping in that context. I have to say. <laughs> so so rats have a limit. They have their their cost benefit analysis as well. <laughs> we also found, for but instance, it, that they right, they, but like, it shows they, you they they can do it though, which is a they, pretty advanced yeah. thing to do. Like they will not cross like a pool of oil to release a trap cage mate, but they will cross a pool of water. So we know that, the, you know, we can quantify how much they will sort of uh, how, how much effort they will exert for, for helping a trap cage mate. Okay. Well, very good. Um, What's the best way for people to find out more about your experiments? Where can they go to, to see what you're doing? Well, we have a website for the lab. Um, if, all of all of our publications are listed on there and little blurbs uh, about what you're saying and uh, some links to recent uh, articles there was national geographic the national geographic uh, piece about animal minds that just came out in october and we are featured there so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, links on the website okay well very good yeah and that's I, I did see an article and that's where i i found you just so you know uh, awesome. There's a bunch of researchers in the article on animal minds. So I thought it was very interesting what was in there. And I wanted to ask you more. So thank you for uh, coming on the podcast again, so late at night. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure discussing with you. I really enjoyed hearing all of your experiment ideas. Intelligent Threads is like no other product on the market. True next level biotechnology 
to help fix root cause issues associated with your body's structure. Try a patch, last for seven days, and see for yourself. IntelligentThreads.com For one or more discussions on Intelligent Threads, please listen to the podcast called It's a Body Structure Thing on Spotify and YouTube. Visit IntelligentThreads.com today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.